0: In our own merit, but through your Son Jesus Christ, Amen. Well, I invite you to join me in your Bibles in the Book of Ephesians, chapter number six. Ephesians, chapter number six. And I just add to what Michael said a minute ago. If you are here with us today, visiting, thank you so much for being with us here today at Cloverleaf Baptist. And everyone is invited to stay after the morning service for our fellowship dinner. Even if you didn't bring anything, we always have more than enough food. So stick around for a meal, get to know us a little bit, and uh, we look forward to just getting the chance to to have conversation together. Ephesians 6 uh, is where we're going to be today. We have been doing a study through the the book of Ephesians, and over coming weeks, we're just going to shift gears a little bit. We're still going to be in Ephesians, but we're going to just slow down a little bit in the section of Scripture that lays out for us the armor of God. We're going to just. Uh, just kind of zoom in a little bit, double-click on a few of these things, and get an idea of what this is all about. So follow along as I read the, the paragraph that we'll be examining in some detail uh, in coming weeks. Ephesians 6, beginning in verse number 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For reason, explanation, we wrestle not Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye may be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. And take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying always, with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. And for me, that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly, to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in bonds, that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. This weekend we're celebrating Memorial Day, and I looked up a few statistics about Memorial Day. This weekend, $1.6 billion will be spent celebrating this holiday. According to Fox News, around 37.1 million Americans are expected to travel by car over this weekend, so I know we got people in town and out of town. 3.4 3.4 million Americans will travel by air and 100, or 1.85 million will travel some other way, cruises, buses, trains, and so on. It's a lot of travel, a lot of getting together to celebrate this weekend and, and have cookouts and, and family celebrations. But part of me sort of feel like, feels like all that frivolity and fun for a holiday that memorializes death and sacrifice is just a little out of step. I feel a little bit of tension about that. Memorial Day is a day that's ostensibly set aside to remember the 650,000 plus men who have given their lives in, in our nation's, nation's wars. It's a reminder of the great cost in acquiring and protecting what we, what we have and enjoy, and maybe on one level it is appropriate to enjoy the freedom that we have and to, to celebrate that, but there should be a soberness about it, right, as we think about that great cost. I think Memorial Day should remind us of the Ubiquity and the cost and the ghastliness of war and of death. It should have something of a sobering effect on us, I think. It should leave us grateful on one level for the peace and tranquility that we have. Listen, we don't live in a war zone. We don't walk out on the Schillinger Road and have to sort of skip over landmines that have been left strewn by the enemy. We don't have to worry about uh, an M1 Abrams tank sort of rolling through your backyard and knocking over your home. We don't live in a war zone and praise God for that. We don't have to worry about foreign troops kicking down our doors at night to, 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 to stage a, a raid on our homes. And I think sometimes that protection we have from war makes a text like the one we're reading right now maybe not hit home as much. In Paul's day, the, in the Roman Empire, it was a very militarized society. The Roman army is legendary, of course, in its, its ability to go and smash things and to conquer things and to take control. Paul, as he wrote the letter to the Ephesians, was under house arrest in Rome and was actually chained day and night to a Roman soldier, to a member of the Praetorian Guard. I can almost picture him kind of sizing up the soldier and be like, "Mm, this is a really good metaphor for what I'm about to say. Looking at the armor that the soldier would wear and the equipment that he had and then likening that to the resources we have as Christians as we engage in the spiritual fight. It's appropriate on this Memorial Day weekend that we begin our series on spiritual warfare from this text. And I want us to maybe set aside a minute uh, our sense of ease and tranquility that we have and try to sort of imagine ourselves in a place where war and violence is more rampant and imagine what it would be like to be on a battlefield because that is the image that Paul wants us to have of the Christian life. No, not the only image, but one of several images that we can consider. Now, this paragraph, let me give you the overview because we are going to kind of get into the weeds in this in, in coming weeks. Verses 10 to 13 are basically the call to war. He says, be strong in the Lord. That's kind of the main command. And then what does that look like? Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Being strong in the Lord means putting on the, the whole panoply, that's the the word there, the armor of God, the, the full suit of military equipment. So you can stand, and then he tells us why we need it in verse 12. We've got a very deadly and powerful enemy. And then verse 13 kind of summarizes, wherefore take unto you the whole armor of God so you can stand. Then beginning in verse 14, stand therefore. When we get that word therefore, it's beginning kind of a new new section in the argument. And how do we stand? Well, we stand by having the right equipment. You don't just show up to the battlefield in flip-flops and swimming trunks and a T-shirt. You show up with the right equipment, with the right weaponry, ready to fight. And so then he will go through six pieces of armor that represent resources that we have in Christ. And then verses 18 to 20 gives us prayer. Not really another piece of armor, but really the way that we put on the armor. How do we put on the armor of God? It's by praying always. Verses 19 and 20. And then verses 21 to 24 concludes the book of Ephesians where Paul will talk about those he does ministry with. People like Tychicus and the believers who are in Rome, the believers who are in Ephesus. Reminding us that we're not like one soldier. This is not like a video game where you're one soldier who goes out and wins the war. But you're you're a hoplite and a phalanx. You're a Roman soldier standing in line with the other soldiers with the shields. You're a member of a platoon. You're part of a large army as we go into that fight. So verses 10 to 13 is what we want to look at this morning. We're seeing that the Christian life, in a sense, is a declaration of war. Your confession of faith, when you came to faith in Jesus, remember when you became a Christian? Like, this is great, I am going to believe in Jesus, my sins will be forgiven on my way to heaven. But it was also an immediate declaration of war from the enemies of Jesus Christ. The moment you became a believer in Jesus, all of the forces of hell, all of the demons in the universe made it, made it their, their goal to take you down. Your confession of faith was a declaration of war against sin that remains in your own heart. It's a declaration of war against the temptations that would, would seek to ambush you on every side. The moment you came over to Christ's side, you began a fight. No, not a fight with your neighbors and people who don't know Jesus, but a fight with sin and with Satan and temptation. So we're called here in this text to be prepared to fight, to take a stand against the forces of hell. We're called to never surrender, to fight them, you know, the the famous speech from Churchill, to fight them on the beaches, to fight them on the landing ground, to fight against sin every day of our lives in every corner of our hearts, in every area of our walk. So how do we go about doing it? How do we fight in an effective kind of way? Because, listen, we, we, we can read the headlines. You can look at the, you know, the annual studies that come out from Pew Research and Barner Research that show more and more the number of people who at one time claimed to be Christians are now saying they're no longer Christians. The fastest growing sort of religious identifying uh, label in our country is nuns, N-O-N-E-S. Those who claim no religious affiliation at all that would say You know, my parents might have been Christian and gone to church, but I don't know what I believe anymore. Among Gen Z, the number of those claiming to be atheists and agnostics uh, is higher than any other generation before. Now, it's a snapshot that may change as people get older and when you have kids and life has a way of changing that. But nonetheless, we're living in an increasingly secular society where we're seeing all the time people who at one time would have claimed to know Jesus Christ surrendering. Who at one time would have said, Yeah, I'm a believer in the Lord's army and would have sung Onward Christian Soldiers, who this morning really want nothing to do with Jesus. How do we not become another casualty in the fight? How do we keep the faith on a battlefield that is a dangerous battlefield? How do we stand firm in the truth of Scripture in a society whose plausibility structures have turned against the faith of Jesus Christ? Well, in these verses we'll look at, when we're we'll looking at verses 10 to 13 today, we'll see that we have to trust in God's power and his ability. We have to stand in God's armor. That will be the theme we'll have in weeks ahead. And we've got to believe in God's assessment of the enemy. Listen, if we think the enemy is a, a, a wimpy enemy who will be a pushover, we'll be the ones who are pushed over. And we need to God, heed God's warning that we are going to have to stand in the evil day. So the first call here, the first directive we have is this. If we're going to stand, if we're going to fight, we must stand in God's power. We have to stand in God's ability. It's very clear in verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Now that word finally, you know, we might read that and we're thinking, oh, it's like when the preacher says, in conclusion. But what Paul is doing here is more than just signposting that his letter is coming into an end. As he is saying, based on everything I have said in Ephesians 1 verse 1 to Ephesians 6 verse 9, there's something we need to do. This is like the conclusion of the the letter. This is like the the climax of the speech when the speech is coming to the rhetorical flourish at the end to drive home the points. Here's what I'm saying is that what we have in Ephesians 6, 10 to 20 is not like an isolated text that we're we're going to talk about the armor of God. We can't disconnect this from the rest of the book. When Paul begins going through these pieces of the armor, what we need to do is go back and look earlier in Ephesians to say, what did he say about faith? What has he said about truth? The resources that he is calling armor, earlier in the book he might have called one of the blessings that we have in Christ. The wealth that we have in Christ is what we saw in the first three chapters of Ephesians, the blessings we have in Jesus, the life that we have in Christ, that we have been resurrected from the dead, the unity that we have in Christ as believers in Jesus, the mystery that has been revealed to us. These are all the riches that we have as believers that have been purchased at the cross through the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. And then in Ephesians 4, he he changed the image from the riches you have to the walk that we should follow. So this is how you live in light of that. So you walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called. You walk in unity with other Christians. If Jesus died to make the church one, Then the way we ought to live is in unity with forgiveness and humility and showing grace to one another. If Jesus died and raised us up from the dead, has given us new birth, then we shouldn't live the way we used to live. So we walk not as the other Gentiles walk. Ephesians 4, verse 17. We've been rescued from darkness, so walk in the light. That's what Ephesians 5 is going to talk about. Walk in love and don't walk in the paths of darkness that you used to walk in. And then he says, walk in wisdom, be filled with the Spirit. And that's going to look like walking in harmony in our relationships between husband and wife, between parents and children, between employers and employees. Like the Christian life is practical stuff. We're called to walk in unity, to walk in purity, to walk in charity, to walk in harmony. Now the image changes. We've compared the Christian life to a a catalog of blessings we have in Jesus, chapters 1 to 3. We've compared it to a dusty road that we walk day in and day out. That's really chapters 4 all the way down to the middle of chapter 6. Now the image changes from the dusty road to the bloody field of battle. Finally, be strong in the Lord. What Paul has drawn our attention to in Ephesians is really quite glorious church that is united, Jew and Gentile together in one body, families that are marked by harmony where husbands love their wives and wives follow the leadership of their husbands and parents teach their children and in the workplace there is mutual respect being shown. You're like, this is beautiful. But sometimes life is not like that. In fact, most of the time life is not like that. Why? If I have all the blessings of Jesus that have been given to me, Why is my life so often marked by hardship and difficulty? Why are my relationships so hard? Why does it feel like when I try to walk in newness, I trip over my own shoelaces and fall back into the sin that I hate so much? One of the reasons is we have an enemy who is fighting against us every step of the way. Satan. Christian life is not a stroll in the park. It is a walk through no man's land. We face a deadly foe, a powerful enemy, Satan himself, Satan is going to fight the gospel's unifying and purifying power in our lives. He's going to seek to rebuild the wall that Jesus tore down between different ethnic groups. So what do we do in light of that? Back in verse 10, Ephesians 6, verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord. Now, this is a passive voice in the original. Be strengthened. We don't strengthen ourselves, but Jesus is the one who strengthens us. Now, what I want you to understand about this, this is a call to war. This is not just, hey, be strong. The way this phrase is used in the Old Testament, and Paul's readers would have understood this, this is a call to get ready to fight. Joshua one, Joshua has now become the leader of Israel. They're, going to get, they're getting ready to cross over the Jordan River to take the land of Canaan. We know they're going to fight the battle of Jericho and Ai. And we remember Joshua as a, as a great warrior who fights the Lord's battles. What is it that Moses said to him? What is it that God said to him? Be strong and courageous. Joshua 1 verse 6. You shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth. You shall meditate therein day and night. And then verse 9, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you whithersoever thou goest. So this call, be strong, is not just, yeah, you know, go beat your chest, but it is a get ready to fight because what we are entering into is war. So just hear how this contrasts with earlier in the book, the beauty of harmonious homes and the beauty of reconciled saints is going to clash sharply with this call to war. It tells us the Christian life, beloved, is not a life of comfort and ease. It's not a call to your best life now. It's not a call to all of your wildest dreams will come true if you follow Jesus and it'll be wonderful. The Christian life is a life of war. It is the soldier's life, not the vacationer's life. So the, the, the music of, uh, of Ephesians 6 is not the celestial harp music of, of glory as we walk along in the Christian life, but it's the drumbeat of war. It rings with the clink of armor and the clamor of war. Spiritual warfare Entering into this fight that Paul describes is not an optional extra for the super-spiritual Christian. This is what it means to be a Christian. When you became a Christian, you not only became a member of the family of God to be reconciled with brothers in Christ and sisters in Christ, you not only became part of the bride of Christ to enjoy a relationship with Jesus, you not only became a stone within the temple to be the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit, but you became a soldier in an army. And all these metaphors are true at the same time, emphasizing something else. That's true of the Christian life. Verse 12, notice the language of verse 12. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood. I love how that is rendered. Our, our struggle, our fight, this is not just the normal word for war. There's a Greek word that just talks about war in general. This is the, war for, the word for grappling and wrestling. We're talking about not launching a missile strike from you know, headquarters in the Pentagon at the enemy on the other side of the world as you watch it on a screen. We're talking about gritty hand-to-hand combat with the enemy. Christian warfare is not a missile strike. It's a wrestling match. It's more like a bayonet charge and less like a sniper sitting up on the hilltop. We go to war against indwelling sin that is right here in our lives day in and day out. We go to war against Satan who is opposing us face-to-face. We go to war against temptation. We go to war against the proclivities of our hearts and rebellion against God. I'm afraid too many Christians do not have a warfare mentality. If you ever go down to the USS Alabama, you know, you go and you look at the quarters and it's not exactly a cruise ship. Those little thin mattresses and bunk beds that are like right there. Or you get onto the USS Drum and you're like, claustrophobic, get me out of here. The Christian life is battleship mentality, not cruise ship mentality. Cruise ship mentality is about I take a sort of a vacation, I go to Cancun, it's great, it's all about my whims being catered to while I'm on board, and the all-you-can-eat buffet, and I go and get lattes, and I go out and play shuffleboard on the deck. That's cruise ship mentality. Cruise ship Christianity says Christianity is about making my life better. Cruise ship Christianity says going to church is about just sort of the, 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 you know, the vacation friends that I make. I want some good adult friends to be able to talk to on Sunday, Cruise ship Christianity is about I take my kids to church in the hopes the church will help them be moral, well adjusted members of society. Cruise ship Christianity is just about sort of shallow acquaintances rather than foxhole accountability. Christianity is not cruise ship Christianity. Christianity is battleship Christianity. You know, one thing about the military, I've not served in the military, but those of you who have served in the military would probably attest to this. The drill sergeant doesn't really care about your preferences right i want a different hairstyle not like everybody's going to get the same haircut everybody's going to eat the same slop you're all going to go on the same march our preferences are not what matters what matters are the directives of the general what matters is the mission the mission trumps everything the mission we have to make christ known and his name be glorified that's what matters not our preferences and too many christians come with a consumer cruise ship mentality and go church shopping well, what will cater to my wounds? What style of music do I like? What you know and by the way, this is true on the seeker sensitive side of things. It's also true on the conservative side of things. I want a church that feels like church. Rather than what does the word of God teach? What's the mission that Scripture has given to us? Christianity is not a walk in the park, it is a fight in the ring. It's a fight with spiritual enemies from start to finish. And listen, if you're in a life and death struggle, it's not something you check in and do once a week for two hours. It is a way of life. A soldier who thinks, I'm only going to get my gun once a week, is not going to last in the fight. If we think that we're going to win this spiritual warfare by dropping into a church service once a week, if that, and then basically be shaped by the culture the rest of the time, we will be littering the battlefield as another casualty. So we must be strong in the Lord's ability. Be strong. Now, notice the, the, the phrase here. In the Lord. Not in our own strength, but in the Lord. Now, in Ephesians, the Lord is a reference to Jesus. Be strengthened in a personal relationship with him. If you're going to be a soldier in the Lord's army, you need to be in Christ. Just because you show up to church does not mean you're in the Lord's army. It does not mean that you are on the right side of the struggle. You need to have a personal, vital relationship with Jesus through faith in his name. Be strong in the Lord reminds us of the fact that we are absolutely powerless to fight hell's hordes ourselves. Apart from Christ's pardoning power, apart from God's enabling grace, we're easy pickings for the enemy. We have no ability to withstand temptation. We're, we're about as effective against hell, hell's ability as someone holding a newspaper would be up against a direct blast from a thermonuclear weapon. Paul said to the church of Corinth, if you stand, take heed lest you fall, thinking, I've got this, I'm just going to go around rebuking Satan and doing all this stuff. You're going to be taken out by temptation. When we begin to tolerate temptation and excuse sin and say, I don't need guardrails in my life. I don't need to be on guard against sin. That's the place where you're about to fall. One of the things I love studying history is seeing the times where pride and hubris brought down a powerful military. You can see, you know, with Napoleon, he's Conquering everybody, and then he thinks, I'm going to go take out Russia. This is going to be great. And by that point, he's simply surrounded by guys who told him what he wanted to hear and didn't consider, this is not a good idea. Hubris is what brought Hitler down. It is what brought Napoleon down. It's what brought down many an army and many a soldier, and it's brought down many a Christian of thinking, I can handle this. I can handle a little bit of sin, a little bit of temptation, cut myself off from the body of Christ, not get into the word of God. Pride is like a blinding smoke in the eyes of a soldier. To be strong, we need to know our weakness. So he says, be strong in the Lord, what do I mean? In the power of his might. Now, I don't think the point here is to, to what's the difference between strength and power and might, but to say, not our ability, his ability. Back in Ephesians 1, verses 19 and 20, we got these same words being used. Just hear how they, what context they're used in, Ephesians 1, 19 and 20. He's praying for the Christians to know what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come The might that he's talking about, this power that he's talking about is resurrection power. The same power that after Jesus was dead in a grave for three days, three nights, brought him back to life. He's saying that's the kind of power that we need and that we have as Christians and that we need to rely upon. Not our ability, but Jesus' ability. The power that gave Christ the victory over the forces of hell in his resurrection is the same power that's actively working in you and me. And guess how we access it? Through prayer. So be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. One of the ways we obey that is by getting on our knees every day and saying, God, I can't do this. You can. I'm not strong enough to, to, to withstand temptation. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. That, that is what this, this means. It's why this section in Ephesians begins with be strong in the Lord and ends with praying always. We're not going to stand in the fight if we're trying to stand in our own power. If we're thinking, well, my own, my own willpower will be the means by which I resist temptation. My, my own strength is the, the means by which I'll resist Satan. No, 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 no. We stand in the Lord and in his power. The power of Jesus is not there for you and me to go out and achieve our dreams, to name it and claim it. The power of Jesus is there for us to go to war and have victory over sin. It's power of a far more radical kind than. Achieving dreams is power about transforming our lives. But a second directive, which is really explaining the first, but if we're going to stand, if we're going to fight, verse 11 says put on the whole armor of God. We have to stand in God's armor, stand in God's equipment, his resources. Now, I said verse 10, the verb there is passive, be strengthened. It's from the outside. If we're trying to rely on our own strength, that's about like an extension cord being plugged into itself. It's not going to do anything. we have got to be strengthened by the Lord. But I love how verse 11 balances that out where verse 10 is something God does, he strengthens. Verse 11 is you put on the armor of God that you may be able to stand. We have divine sovereignty and human responsibility side by side. Now, notice that word stand. Maybe a little bit of a misnomer in the outline uh, that I printed to have the word fight as I kind of thought about it. Like, Jesus is the one who wins the fight. We're called simply to stand against the wiles of the devil. That word stand kind of ties the text together. There it is in verse 11. We see it again in verse 13. Take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand. It's basically the same word. Stand against. And then we have it at the end of verse 13, having done all, stand, verse 14, stand. What we're called is hold the ground. Don't surrender the field. And that is our responsibility. This is not simply a case of, well, let go and let God. I'm just going to sort of sit back there at home and I'll have victory over sin by just sort of automatic. Victory over sin does not happen automatically. We don't succeed in the Christian life by just passive waiting. We don't grow in holiness by doing nothing. We must actively obey. We must strenuously fight. That is our responsibility. This is not let go and let God pray this little prayer and you'll have victory over sin or speak in tongues and you'll never struggle again with temptation. There's no quick fix. There's no shortcut. It's not like a hot air balloon ride where you get in the hot air balloon and then sort of physics takes over as hot air rises. That's not the Christian life. It's more like a bike ride uphill the entire way. You've got sin pulling you back every step of the way. You have gravity fighting against you. So we've got to stand. We've got to stand in God's armor. But I, I love the fact that in verse 10, put on the whole armor of God, the panoply, the full outfit of a, of a soldier. Paul's going to compare, of course, the Christian's armor to the, the kit of a, of a Roman soldier. But God's armor, you thought about what that little phrase of God is doing, the armor of God. It's not just sort of like, oh, I need to put some Christiany sounding stuff in here. So we're going to throw God's name in there to be, oh, it's God's armor. The armor of God is armor that is provided by God, but it's actually armor that God himself possesses. I had Jim read Isaiah 11 verse 5, and I don't know if you picked up on this. Isaiah 11 talks about the the, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and it says also righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness the belt around his waist. We're getting a little hint. Paul is alluding to that Old Testament text. The, the, the armor that we as Christians put on is the armor that Jesus, in a sense, as he went to war to deliver his people, wore into battle. Isaiah 59, talking about Jehovah God going to war against the enemies of his people, says the Lord saw it and it was displeasing in his sight that there was no justice. And he saw that there was no man and he was astonished there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought salvation to him and righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness like a breastplate. And the helmet of salvation on his head, he put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle. The idea here in the Old Testament, Jehovah God, we often think of God, he's a father, he's our creator. But he's also presented as a divine warrior who goes out and conquers and judges and fights the battles of his people. And he's putting on this armor of his divine attributes, of his divine glory, of his essence as he goes and does that. And the point here of saying the armor of God, these are not resources that you and I come up with. We don't go and forge our own sword or come up with our own breastplate. We take that which is God's himself. We take that which God himself shares with us as his people. We receive the very divine nature. This is amazing. You see, there's a lot of, when we talk about spiritual warfare and demons and Satan, there's a lot of goofy, superstitious ideas out there. People want to get out. We need to rebuke the demon of this and pray this prayer and say this to Satan and take the seven mountains of cultural power and and all of us name it and claim it and declare this and declare that. Everybody's wanting to run around and declare all of these things as if our word has creative power. It doesn't. The weapons of our warfare are not the weapons that some TV preacher or TBN superstar comes up with. The weapons of our warfare are the weapons that God has handed to us. So, if you're going and doing spiritual warfare in a way that you can't ground in scripture, you're probably being misled. We don't resort to some incantation to exercise supposed demons. Some people rebuke Satan using formulas that they picked up from some book or website or blog or YouTube video. We don't engage in spiritual warfare according to our own creativity. We don't look for incantations or magical prayers or superstitious phrases or little things that you hang from the mirror of your car to make you sort of ward off evil spirits. That is superstitious. I'm going to put a bumper sticker on my car and God will protect me. No, no, that's, that, that that is plain superstition. I'm going to leave a, a Bible here and, and that will sort of ward off. Like, no, 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 no. We take up God's very own armor that he lays out for us in this text. These are the weapons that God has given to us. And by the way, there's only one offensive Weapon in our, in our armory, and it is the word of God. That's it. We're not given the, you know, the lance of going out and speaking out against Satan. No, we're given the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So we've got to take up God's armor, not, not our own armor, not our own resources, not our own ability. Otherwise, we will fall in the fight. But now coming into verses 11 and 12, and Paul slows down here to take some time to describe the enemy. If we're going to have... Victory, and we're not going to be a casualty on the on the field of battle. We not only need to, to trust and rely on God's power and ability. We not only need to take up the armor that God Himself provides us. We need to number three: understand, believe, and accept God's assessment of the enemy. Verses eleven and twelve are, are read kind of like an intelligence report. Uh, look at look at look at verse eleven. Put on the whole armor of God. Why? Purpose clause. That you may be able able to withstand, stand against the wiles, those are the stratagems of the devil. Why do we need to put on the armor of God? For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, because of this, take unto you the whole armor of God. He grounds what he is saying in this description of our enemy. You need to understand the enemy you know in any war knowing the enemy is going to be really important you know what are what are his strengths where where are his troops gathered what are his weaknesses what are going to be the tactics and the strategies that he employs what weapons work best in opposing him what weapons will he bring to the fight i think we've seen in the uh, the war that's been happening in ukraine and russia kind of this play out where one army works a certain way and another army sort of thwarts it another way. And which one is able to adapt is the one that is able to succeed. Listen, if we resort to the wrong tactics, we'll lose. If we fight armed with sticks rather than guns, if we charge the enemy as a lone soldier, if we underestimate his strength, our corpses will be the ones who litter the spiritual battlefield. So let's read the intelligence report and really take it on board here. Satan here is presented as a real foe. As we consider what our enemy is, we have to notice first off that he is a real enemy. Sometimes people will look at Christianity and be like, man, this is this backward world of witches and demons where people believe in Satan being under every rock. This is... The Bible presents Satan as a real enemy. He is not simply the figment of the imagination of the biblical writers. He's not simply a metaphor, a personification of evil in the world. Satan is presented as a personal, powerful, real spiritual enemy. He's a real spiritual enemy arrayed against God and determined to destroy God's people. Now, listen, he's not eternal. He is a being that is created by God. More than likely, one of the original seraphs that God created to, to worship. And he's got great power. He's turned against God. He's rebelling against God. But he is a real enemy. Now, I don't mean real in the sense of physical Uh, There is a whole real spiritual realm that is out there. Arrayed against God and determined to destroy God's people. And you know how Satan has operated since day one? He has attacked those who are made in God's image. He can't attack God himself, so he attacks God's image bearers. He attacks Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Tries to turn those who are made to worship and know God into rebels against God. He is called the accuser of the brethren. He is called the tempter. He is the opposer. The term Satan is the, the adversary. The devil is the one who accuses. He goes and accuses God's people before the throne of God. He's presented as real. He's not simply an impersonal force of evil, but he's called the ruler of this world. He is called the God of this age. He's called the prince of the power of the air. He is called the one who actively works in the children of disobedience. He's presented from cover to cover in the Bible as a real enemy. And I think perhaps as conservative Christians, we can be guilty of underestimating our enemy. We can look at some of the things that happen in the name of Christianity where people go overboard with spiritual warfare, where they see a demon in every flat tire and Satan's behind, you know, every aching knee. Oh, Satan's trying to get me. Uh, I think Satan's got a couple of tricks up his sleeve. One of them is to get people to overestimate his ability and power to see his, I got a flat tire, it's the devil trying to get me. Or folks on the other side react to that and see Satan in nothing. I think we need to have a biblical understanding that he is real. Now, I want to spend some time on this next, this next sub-point here. That our enemy, he's real, but he is cunning. Verse 11 says that we may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. We got that word wily, right? That's someone who's sneaky. The, the word here is methodea, right? You can hear the word method in that that word. It means something that is a scheme or craftiness. Satan doesn't just show up and say, here I am in a red suit with a a pitchfork tail, right? He's not showing up as this terrifying demon like he sometimes is in these these movies where evil is real apparent. No, he's going to show up, as as 2 Corinthians 11 says, as an angel of light, as an angel of light. Of light. He doesn't look like Sauron from the Lord of the Rings. No, he shows up looking like an angel of light. He shows up looking like one who would be an emissary of God himself. Paul writes this, For such men, he's talking about people who speak against the gospel, are false prophets, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as the apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it's not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness whose end will be according to their deeds. Satan is a counterfeiter. He is a deceiver. This word that is translated wiles appears one other time in the Greek New Testament. It's back in Ephesians 4 and verse 14. Look back in Ephesians 4, verse 14. Paul's praying and and working and instructing the church to go forward to a maturity. He says that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. That word craftiness. Now, notice the deception here is about doctrine. Coming along saying, hey, here's what the Bible says. Now, let me yank a verse out of context. Let me take something that is true and make it the whole truth when it's merely part of the truth. Or let me just deny something that is part of the truth and just pretend that it doesn't exist. 1 Timothy 4, verse 1 says, The Spirit explicitly says that in the last days some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the doctrines of demons. First John 4 says, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess that Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. A world where there is deception. So one of the things Satan will do will get you to try to disbelieve or doubt the Bible. Yea, hath God said, "You shall not eat of every tree of the garden. He comes up with counterfeit religions. He spins out false gospels that offer a false salvation. One of the hallmarks of the false gospels that Satan will preach is this notion that you can save yourself through some good deed. That's every false gospel in human history. In the, in the final estimation, there are two religions in the world. Salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone for the glory of God alone. And some other form of you save yourself. You follow the, the noble path of, of Buddhism or Hinduism. You take the seven sacraments of Rome. You uh, uphold the seven pillars of Islam. All human works where you do, do, do. Where Christianity says it is finished, done. Here's one of the hallmarks, one of the tests. You can, you can, you can measure any system of belief. Does it exalt Jesus Christ alone as the way of salvation or does it exalt man as somehow contributing to his own salvation. And there are a million false gospels out there of salvation by your own efforts, whether that is the the modern-day heresies of critical theories that say by protesting and kneeling and doing these things, you can sort of redeem yourself from the stigma of the sins of your ancestors. That's a false gospel. Or the gospel of by hard work, you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps and achieve the American dream and deliver yourself from... Poverty and hardship, that can be a false gospel. All around us on either side. We're coming up on Pride Month. We see Satan's deception on full display with rainbows emblazoning everything and, and all of these celebrations of perversion. I think it is a, a an evidence of Satan's blinding power on this world. But let's be careful. It is easy for us like Jonah to denounce Nineveh, but ignore the sin in our own hearts. We can easily say, oh, look at the evil of the pride that's out there in society. What do we expect in a world that's dominated by Satan while overlooking the self-righteous pride in our own hearts? Satan appeals on a personal level to our fallen desires for money, for power, for illicit sex. He'll present temptations as attractive and harmless. That's how he operates. He doesn't come along saying, hey, here's sin. Take meth and it'll destroy your life. He'll say, come take this drug and it'll make you happy. That's how he tempts. Click on this link. Don't worry, it won't wreck your life. It won't lead to divorce in your marriage while leading you down this path of addiction. He'll show you the worm and not the hook. He'll show you the bait but not the trap. He'll show you the sin, not the consequences. And he'll lead you to believe the false gospel that you can find ultimate joy in something other than God. So temptation, allurement to evil, deception. We have a deceptive foe. Another one of the weapons that Satan uses as our cunning enemy is division. So again, looking at our text, Ephesians 6, we're able to stand, verse 11, against the wiles of the devil. Again, we need to look back at what Paul said earlier in Ephesians. The devil is mentioned one other place in Ephesians by name. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26 Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Neither give place to the devil. You pick up the implication here. You give Satan, you cede territory on the field of battle to your spiritual enemy by failing to resolve anger quickly. One of the wiles of the devil, we could just simply call it division. Division. When you you become angry towards your spouse and you don't resolve it, you just kind of try to keep it all in. Or you get angry and, and frustrated with a brother in Christ. We have a disagreement with another Christian about something that doesn't really matter. And you refuse to resolve it. You're giving ground to Satan. It's one of the wiles. He's shooting his arrows at you and his, his arrows are hitting the target. You see, some Christians don't want to be victims of deception. And so they go to the other extreme of becoming overly suspicious of everything. Instead of sending the invasion fleet to the beaches of Normandy, they turn it against Britain and attack fellow Christians. If Satan can get us to fight within our ranks over dumb stuff that does not matter, if he can have us being angry and frustrated at one another about things that are not at the core of the faith, he's able to successfully set up bases of operation in Christian territory. He's able to park an aircraft carrier in the harbor of our homes when we nurse grudges against one another, he's able to set up a forward operating base within the parking lot of the church when there's division. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 says we're not ignorant of Satan's devices. And what's he talking about? He says you need to forgive. You need to forgive one another lest Satan get an advantage over you. Unforgiveness is one of the most potent weapons in Satan's arsenal. And we can sort of congratulate ourselves, I'm never going to forgive, I'm never going to forget, look how holy and righteous I am, and we're kicking the door wide open in a horrible neighborhood for the enemy to come walking right in. We're abandoning the post and saying, here's a gap in the lions, come through and flank us and attack us from behind. So division's another one of his enemies that we consider our cunning enemy. Here's one that Matthew 13 mentions, remember the parable of the Sower. So some seed goes on the hard ground, the birds of the air snatch it away. And then Jesus explains, he says, the word is preached, and then the devil snatches it away. Let me call this distraction. Come, you hear a message at church. You're hearing the word preached and proclaimed, or you're sitting there doing your devotions, and your mind gets distracted by a notification that dings up on your phone. Or a baby starts crying in the back and you're distracted to where you're... One moment before, the Spirit of God is convicting your heart and trying to lead you to make some kind of change in your life. And the next minute, you're thinking about the roast that's sitting in the, pot, in the crock pot back home. You're thinking about the football game. You're thinking about other things. If Satan can distract us, the word will have no effect to get down into the soil of our hearts. We're a distracted age because we have distractions, powerful distractions we carry around with us in our pockets and on our wrists at all times. The distractions. We, we we train ourselves to be distracted, to have a low attention span, an attention span less than a goldfish as we go and look at the next tweet and the next Facebook and a little ding and a little picture, a little image over here. Distracted Christian is potentially a Christian who will be taken down by the enemy. Another one of his wiles is difficulty, hardship. Paul in 1 Thessalonians Thessalonians 2, verse 18 says, I wanted to come visit you, but Satan hindered me. He brought some kind of hardship, some kind of roadblock in my life to keep me from getting to where you are. Revelation 2, verse 10, Jesus says that Satan has imprisoned the church at Smyrna, unleashing persecution, physical, physical difficulty. We see Satan in the Gospels using demons to demonize people, bring horrific sickness and suffering upon them. We can, of course, look at Job's life in Job 1 and 2 where Satan unleashes a torrent of suffering and hardship in Job's life in an attempt to sweep away his faith. Now, let me be very careful here. Satan is not sovereign over this world. Satan has to go to to, to God's throne and, and, and get permission to be able to touch Job's body. Paul uses similar language in Romans to say that I wanted to come to Rome, but I was prevented hitherto, saying it's God who has prevented this from happening. God is sovereign over all things. Every circumstance is under God's authority and is according to his decree. But let me put it this way. In every trial that God wills with a good will in your life, he's going to bring hardship. A cancer diagnosis that he intends to make you more like Christ... Satan, in the exact same event, is willing with an evil will. He's saying, Oh, maybe I can use this to destroy your faith. The hardship to Job, proving the glory of God, that's God's intention. Satan, in this exact same event, is intending to destroy Job's faith. James 1 bears this out like, count it all joy when you, when you fall into manifold testings. Knowing that the trying of your faith works patience. But then later on he says, when you're tempted, let no one say that I'm tempted of God. Within the test that God brings our way can be a temptation to cheat on the test, to look over and and, and do evil. Difficulty is one of Satan's wiles that he shoots at you. So be careful we don't want to say, oh, look, Satan brought this sickness into my life. God is the one who is sovereign over life and death and over everything. It wouldn't happen without divine ordination. But do understand that in every difficulty is an opportunity to sin, is Satan's attempt to try to bring you down. Is it not the case that in our flesh we will more readily excuse disobedience when we've had a long day? You know what, I'm going I'm to go drink a little. I had a really rough day at work today. Is it not true that moments of pain can be moments of doubt and disbelief? I can't believe God is good if he's allowing this in my life. Are not tests of loneliness, also temptations to sin? We could go on and on, probably take four or five messages and talk about all the ways that Satan attacks us. He is a cunning enemy who has many different weapons in his arsenal to try to attack the people of God. And the more we can be aware of what his wiles are, what his schemes are, what his cunning stratagems are, the more ready we will be to hoist the shield of faith to quench the fiery darts of the wicked. Now, here's another attribute of our enemy, and we're going back to the intelligence report in Ephesians 6. He is a spiritual enemy. Verse 12, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. Sharp contrast, flesh and blood. We're not wrestling against fighting against something physical that we can see or touch. Our enemy is not other people. It's not institutions or companies or organizations or governments. Our enemy is something spiritual that we cannot see. A spiritual enemy. We're fighting an enemy we cannot see with our eyes, but against a spiritual and invisible force. When I say spiritual, I don't mean like, oh, spiritual, like the spirit of God, but something that is by nature a spiritual enemy as opposed to a physical enemy. Our enemy as Christians is not target. It is not the United States government. It's not any human institution. Our enemy is not your lost neighbor who lives in a a lifestyle contrary to God's word. Your enemy is not your agnostic co-worker who makes snide comments against the Christian faith. Our enemy is Satan and sin. Our enemy is the deception that he promulgates. Now, this is really important. If I confuse the identity of the enemy, I'll take up the wrong weapons. If I think the enemy coming at me is going to be airplanes, I'll have you know, surface-to-air missiles. But if the enemy coming at me is going to be some kind of an infiltration, I need a different type of weapon. So 2 Corinthians 10, Paul says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but are mighty through God. For the destruction of fortresses, for the tearing down of strongholds. We're destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Do you hear what Paul said? The enemy is not physical, therefore the weapons of our warfare are not Physical. Our enemy is not political, therefore the tactics we employ are not political. Our enemy is spiritual, and therefore the way we fight him is with spiritual power. We fight against the gospel-perverting deceptions of Satan with the truth of God proclaimed. We employ persuasion and declaration, and we plead with sinners to come to faith in Jesus. We do not resort to coercion or to protests or to picketing in the streets. We don't advance the kingdom through the ballot box or at the end of an AR15 or by means of boycotts or riots. We advance the kingdom through the preaching of the gospel alone. Our power is declarative, not coercive. So that means this, the the culture around us, the people around us, and we're going to see a lot more of this in the next month, pride month where sin is put on full display, they are not our enemies. The transgender co-worker who insists on other people using certain pronouns is not your enemy. Your enemy is the evil that has captivated them, but they themselves are not your enemy. They're not a threat to be avoided. I'm going to stay away because I might catch. Sin's not like a sickness that you pick up like a cold. It's something that dwells already in my own heart. Those who reject Christ are not a threat to be avoided, but are lost souls to seek and to win to Christ. So we denounce the evil of sin and the destruction of sin, and we call sinners to faith in Christ, which, by the way, means sinners need to be welcome in this church. This is where the gospel is going to be preached, and it should be preached by your life. But if we say, well, only certain sinners are worthy to come to Cloverleaf Baptist Church, we are not a church anymore. We're a country club. We invite and welcome sinners as we confront sin. And let me also say this. If sinners come to this church and we coddle them in their sin and celebrate them in their sin, we're not a church either. We've simply become an embassy of the kingdom of darkness. We need to speak against sin and speak to sinners in calling them to faith in Jesus Christ. Because the enemy is not flesh and blood. The enemy is the deception. The enemy is the deceiver. The enemy is the sin. Now, something else to note about our enemy is he is powerful. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but instead, in contrast, we wrestle against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places, in the heavenly places. Now, some people will say, well, these are political terms. So maybe he's talking about the Roman Empire and the structures. The reason we can't say that is the uh, spiritual wickedness at the end of verse 12 and then that in heavenly places modifies all the other phrases before it in high places in the heavenly in the spiritual realm we're dealing with a powerful enemy that's why he uses power words principalities powers rulers spiritual wickedness in heavenly places they have great spiritual authority and power remember the demons and satan were originally angels created with great power by god to worship him they're very very powerful and they retain that power now they've rebelled against Against God, Satan in his rebellion took a third of the angels with him. Those are the demons, the demonic forces that he has at his disposal. And our spiritual enemies have the power to send spiritual deception, to inspire false teaching, to sometimes unleash painful illnesses, to even demonize individuals to such a degree that their humanity is almost destroyed. They are powerful. They are evil. And these beings beings rule over the darkness. They're marked by wickedness. In Ephesians 2, verses 1 1 to 3, Paul says that they rule over and work in the children of disobedience. They have full sway in the hearts of those who don't know Jesus Christ. They dominate the darkness described in Ephesians 4, 17 to 19. Satan is called the god of this age who blinds the minds of those who do not know the truth, keeping them from the truth. We are dealing with a very, very powerful enemy, which is why we can't resort to physical weapons to go against a powerful spiritual enemy. Powerful. Now, just as an aside here, what he's describing in verse 12, it's not like a hierarchy of these, well, these are the generals, these are the colonels. The We're not given definition of what these terms mean, but simply told that they are powerful. Now, I just want to conclude with this. Spiritual wickedness in heavenly places. It's really easy to be discouraged. Man, the enemy is powerful, and they're dominating and working through these structures and through these worldviews and these deceptions. What are we to do? That little phrase in heavenly places has been used throughout the book of Ephesians. Let me go back and just give you some of these high points. Ephesians 1 and verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. So the same sphere where these demons dominate is the same sphere where we've been blessed with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1 and verse 20. Jesus, when he was raised from the dead... He has been set at God's own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power. There's those words. And might and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this world, but in that which is to come. So here's the powerful spiritual beings arrayed against us, and here's King Jesus ruling over them. And by the way, so Jesus is seated at the Father's own right hand, Ephesians 2, verse 6. He's raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, in Jesus we have victory over all the forces of hell. Ephesians three and verse ten. Because of the unity of the church, God is working out this, this plan, this administration to bring Jew and Gentile together to the intent now that under the principalities and powers in heavenly places he might might be made known by the church the wisdom, the manifold wisdom of God. Here's my point. The foes we're facing, they're powerful, they're spiritual, all of these things. They're defeated. They're subjected to the lordship of King Jesus. And in Christ, we're seated with Jesus. So no matter how high the spiritual wickedness, we are seated yet higher in Christ. No matter how powerful, we are empowered by the all-powerful one, Jesus Christ. He has won the victory. The fact that God, through the gospel, is saving sinners means that their final defeat has already begun. So yeah, they're powerful, but don't fear the enemy. Don't fear those who can kill the body. Fear the one who can kill body and soul. The ring's already been cast into Mount Doom. The Tower of Evil, even now, is crumbling. And evil may dominate for a while longer, but believers have been delivered from it. I hope this is an encouragement as we think about this, as we, as we come to our conclusion this morning living in an age where many are walking away from the faith. But I want you to remember the victory that Christ has won. You might be, even now, under the assault and the attack of Satan in your life. You're like, I can feel this. The victory was won at the cross. Yes, we might hear stories of those who reject the faith. We might see those filling our social media feeds. The question we need to ask ourselves is, how will we stand on the day of battle? How will we stand on the evil day? Well, the good news is that we can be and we must be strengthened in the Lord and the power of His might. The good news is that God has given us the resources of His armor. And He's given us an intelligence report that includes in it the fact that our enemy have already been crushed. We simply need to stand firm. We need to remember this is not a cruise ship, but a battleship. This is not a vacation, this is a war. But a war whose outcome is certain because of what happened on that cross and at that empty tomb. Father, as we bow our heads and our hearts and prepare our our hearts to celebrate communion.